To go into the dark with a light is to know the light. To know the dark, go dark. Go without sight and find that the dark, too, blooms and sings and is traveled by dark feet and dark wings. To know the dark, Wendell Berry. This is Our Numinous Nature, and I'm your host, Philippe. We'll be hearing the profound stories of people with a deep connection to the natural world, from herbalists to hunters, wildlife rehabilitators to trappers, artists to homesteaders. The list goes on. My hope is to thread a needle that weaves together the many nature-related passions through stories of reverence. In nature, I've found meaning, a richness for life that grows with each new day. Maybe you feel the same. Or maybe you long to. That quote was provided by the first guest on our Our Numinous Nature road trip, our podcasting road trip, where I went to Denver with my girlfriend to uh, celebrate an extremely small wedding for my little sister. And along the way, both there and back, we recorded six, perhaps seven podcasts. One of them was a little weird, and I think it needs to be tossed in the trash can. It was very, uh, it was a strange one, but the other ones were amazing. I'm not going to talk too much about that road trip in this episode because this is a long one because Lynn is such a fantastic guest. But uh, I'll tell you briefly, um, in Tennessee, we interviewed Lynn, who is a lightning bug expert. We interviewed a Cedar Hill Homestead, which is a, um, a homesteading herbalist. In Missouri, I found a country sheriff who is also a fur buyer and a trapper. In Kansas, I interviewed a, an, a prairie herbalist who has uh, Lakota ancestry. Really, really, really great episode. On our way back from Denver... We interviewed a fossil hunter in the High Plains in Kansas. And on our return trip in Missouri, um, we I actually interviewed the Airbnb host from one of our stays, a really, really cool woman who uh, bought a tiny piece of acreage um, amongst all the cornfields and built a little oasis and um, basically made a country restaurant and restored a dilapidated house, which she was living in with raccoons and all sorts of animals. (laughs) Really cool episode. So we've got those to look forward to. So this episode with Lynn is really extraordinary. What an inspiring and passionate and loving and adventuresome person. Her and her husband and her children, who I believe at least one or more of them is now a biologist, all have lived such um, passionate and nature-filled lives. And this one is so inspiring because um, Lynn is basically a citizen scientist, and yet she has made legitimate discoveries on behalf of science. Um, She discovered that there was a certain synchronous firefly in the Smoky Mountains that no one else knew about. And she brought that Uh, she brought attention to that. She's also written the only guidebook on lightning bugs in North America. 
and that is titled Fireflies, Glowworms, and Lightning Bugs, Identification and Natural History of the Fireflies of the Eastern and Central United States and Canada. And I believe she says in this podcast that that gives um, identification on 70 plus species. So who knew? I had no idea. I had no idea before looking into Lynn that there was more than one firefly. I had no clue. Lynn has also done some major work on a handful of really impressive documentaries. Uh, For instance, there's a brand new David Attenborough BBC documentary called Seven Worlds, One Planet. I think that's on Netflix. The North America episode has a segment on lightning bugs, and Lynn directly worked on that. I believe she she took uh, the crews into the field, and she talks about that on the podcast. Another project she worked on actually meeting David Attenborough is uh, a 2015 documentary, Life That Glows. So both of those are awesome. We've watched both of those. She's also worked on a recent Netflix nature documentary project called Night on Earth, where they show you with a special camera technique, they show you what night might look like for animals. And the episode that that she has worked on is called Dusk to Dawn. Now she has she isn't actually in these episodes. You're just seeing the nature or you're seeing David Attenborough. Um, but she's worked on all these projects, which is fascinating. Now we actually stayed in Lynn's guest house the night before doing our interview. And we got to meet her and her husband and have some really amazing conversations. And Lynn didn't want to talk about it on the podcast, but she gave me permission to mention it in brief. But she told us about the work that she does with impoverished kids in her community. And she does this through her church. And she told us some horror stories about life down there for the poor that was, um, I mean, literally overwhelming. You know, hearing about these poor kids who've got prostitute moms or no mom and just a drug addict dad who has prostitutes coming in and out of the house and, you know, living in squalor. One story about, you know, a couple, uh, a girl who's 14, a guy who's 16, they already have one or two kids and they moved into a real, a real bad situation in a house. And, and yet it was better than the house the girl grew up in because that one had needles all over the floor. So they wanted to at least move away from having needles for the baby to step on. And when that young man was asked, does he have a dream? His dream, he couldn't think of anything. And his dream was just to live in the um, government housing. So, you know, hearing stories like this, hearing stories about a kid who has fetal alcohol syndrome and no mom, and the dad is a deadbeat and the kid has to feed himself. And he's basically just eating cans of SpaghettiO that slowly begin to rot and even cans that have maggots pouring out of them and the kid is eating these. So, you know, Lynn telling us this, like, I couldn't even believe it. It was was so hopeless. Like, how do you help these people out of the horrors that they were born in? And it was so overwhelming to hear about. And I, I actually, when Lynn went back up to her house, I went into the guest house to cook dinner and I just sat down and I, uh, I mean, I started crying. 
and Lynn sent me a text kind of finishing the story. And she basically said that when she was trying to figure out how can she help mentor these kids, she reached out to a friend who was a therapist. And the friend said, as long as you still see the light in their eyes, you keep trying. One day the light will go out. And at that point, you need to walk away. And I instantly made this connection with Lynn because her passion is finding bioluminescence, finding natural light in darkness. You know, she's spent so much time studying the fireflies. So to me, I, I, I think that even her work outside of her work in the natural world is trying to find the tiniest amount of light in people who are shrouded in complete and devastating darkness. So what a remarkable woman. What a fascinating person. And as heavy as what I just said sounds, she's such a light person. And as we get into this interview, you'll hear how filled she is with joy and with vibrance for life. So I hope you enjoy this one. Thanks for listening, everyone. Can you describe where we are? Is this considered part of Appalachia? Not really. Okay. I mean, it's sort of the region. Mm -hmm. We are in the Great Tennessee Valley, uh, which is like one of the largest, at one time, most fertile valleys in the world. Top 2% of the topsoil. Which is one of the few things I remember from college a thousand years ago. But it, and so as humans, so what did we do? We put interstates down it. We developed that real nice, flat, rich land. But anyway, we are between, we're sandwiched between the Smoky Mountains, which are part of the Appalachians, and the Cumberland Mountains, which are sort of an offshoot. Okay. But the Great Tennessee Valley is between the two. Nice. So in the winter, you could look over there and see the Cumberland Mountains are right out there and the Smokies are not visible because there's a hill in the way, nice. a bridge in the way. And yeah. we're about like, are we like 20 minutes from, from Knoxville? Yeah, we're still considered Knoxville nowadays. Okay. Our zip code and name has changed over 40 years. We've mm-hmm. been several things. But now we're Knoxville, Knox County, and we're in Hardin Valley. And, and Hardin Valley, if you hear that machine that I'm hearing that just started up, Hardin Valley is one of the fastest growing areas in this region now, and they are completing a house every 32 hours. Oh, my God. Yeah, and it breaks my heart. This was yeah. the most beautiful agricultural valley when we moved out here in the 70s. I believe it. I mean, so your place, to describe it for people, you are like tucked in on this little mountaintop, completely surrounded by woods. You can walk for about five minutes down to a river, um, your drive is up a big gravel road, and you know you have a little oasis right here. Yet our drive over was um, like suburban, the suburban sprawl. Yes, and so like you're saying, that never existed. That's all exploded in the past ten years. Man. So it's sad, and it's like you saw my deer fence. I never had to have a deer fence for mm. my garden for the first forty years, but. As the land has been gobbled up, as the farmland has converted to subdivisions, the deer have nowhere to go. Mm. And so, I mean, we have deer laying in the front yard now. They've all been pushed Mm. to the few remaining places. Wow. And eventually their numbers, I guess, will decline. But it's it's just kind of sad. They don't know where to go. And uh, But that's At least you got good hunting here. Well, 
I guess, yeah. These are kind of like pet deer. Yeah. But, okay. um, <laughs> but they were tearing my garden up until I found on YouTube the solution, which really works. With which monof- is what? Well, it's eight-foot posts and 30-pound test monofilament line strung every foot. And the whole thing, and so it's easy. It was something I could actually do. I can also take it down in the winter when I don't need it. I probably won't, but I can. Um, and the whole deal is the deer doesn't see that monofilament line, and it freaks them out. Hmm. And so if they touch it, if they see your vegetables and they're wanting to come eat them, they're not expecting to touch anything, and suddenly they run into that line. That's and a it, great tip. it works. I, I'm shocked. And that's a fishing line. Yeah, 30-pound test. You don't want it any heavier than that because it, I don't know why, it's probably harder to work with. And you don't want it lighter. I've not had one. I mean, we've not had a single deer, and they mowed me down last year. Uh, But I did see one of my horses hit it. I'll let them out and graze sometimes. And the very first day, so you can't put flagging. You you make it totally, it's invisible Invisible, except for the post. And, but one of my horses accidentally hit it. And, um, oh. She went nuts. I mean, she snorted and went bucking off. And I realized that's probably a very similar t- reaction to what the deer do. So they probably have hit it because I've seen deer all around it. But anyway, it's a great thing. If that's anybody's having tip. deer problems, Google it. And I'm sure it's they there. are. That's a great and, tip. Yeah, Thank and, you. It's, and I could do it. That was what was so great. Yes. You know, I didn't want to have to build a big fence. So That's really great. And then yeah. the ugly fence. But, um, okay, I wanted to say, before we get into who you are, because mm. you're quite the incredible human being. Uh, I want to describe your house is amazing. I mean, uh, your house, it's, uh, you know, you guys built it, right? Yes, in 77. And it is this, it's beautiful, big wooden slats and the decor on the outside and in the inside is like the old school naturalist style. You guys have, you know, you have these unbelievable wall hangings of roadkill pelts <laughs> that you self-tanned. The side of the house has all these antlers from hunts and I'm sure from found Found. Yeah, a lot of them are sheds that sheds. we find, yeah. And, uh, you know, tur- tortoise shells. Inside, you've got like a big um, display display um, cabinet completely filled with stuff found from the sea, right? Yeah, we sailed around the world in the 70s in a 40-foot boat. And so I was a shell collector at the time. But the key was I never collected them live. I had to find a perfect shell that had just probably been cleaned by an octopus. That was my goal, because I couldn't stand their little eyes looking at me when I collected them live. The shells were beautiful, but it's like, oh my gosh, what do I do with the animal inside? So I got over that really fast. It's like, I'm not gonna do that. They have to already be cleaned by an octopus or something. So tell a little bit about that. The octopus will clean the shells? Yeah, they eat shells. And so- They eat them? Yeah, they, oh, eat the they, they eat the animals inside. I and mean, they'll that's just process what, the shell of that? And, and well, they kind of suck them out. I don't know how they do it, but they can clean them better than I ever could. And uh, and we, our trip was uh, snorkeling and scuba diving all over the world in places maybe where no one else had ever been. And so you got, I got pretty good at finding octopus. The octopus live in den and... So you can find the octopus dens by the shells gathered around them. I mean, you can see it from, you could be snorkeling 20 feet above and go, oh, there's one. So then you dive down and just start picking out the pretty shells. So they have them beautifully cleaned. Wow. uh, 
Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. I love so that. So it was an easy way of doing it. Also, after storms, sometimes uh, little spits of sand out in the middle of nowhere would have odd currents. One of them, one, and we only saw it one time in the whole world, you know, the whole three years. But there was just this spit of land kind of near New Guinea. And we just got off. We anchored and went ashore just to stand on some sand instead of being at sea. It was a long passage. And something about the currents had brought maybe 40 chambered nautiluses. I don't mm. know if you ever read the poem Oliver Wendell Holmes Mm-mm. and the chambered nautilus. Mm-mm. And it seals itself as it moves forward. Mm. So it's lots of chambers. And as it grows, it seals that chamber. Then it builds a bigger chamber. Anyway, they're really neat, neat and rare, fairly rare shells. But something about the currents right there, the whole beach was littered. And we had so little room on the boat. Each of us had a space about a foot by a foot for all of our clothes. Your which closet. was could a bikini and a T-shirt mm-hmm. in those days. But we didn't have room to even bring the shells. And so I had to choose. I realized I could probably fit two or three with my stuff, but we left all the other ones laying on the... So incredible. Yeah. That's so beautiful. Yeah. I'll show you one upstairs. You know what that reminds... I'd love to see it. You know what that reminds me of? When When I first moved into the cabin that I live in now, my landlady told me about the, um, the wood rat. And so these oh. Appalachian wood rats. Yeah. So one of them lives under the house and we'll hear them doing stuff. And supposedly, so these wood rats, they're solitary. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of what I remember about them. They're solitary and they collect stuff and they yeah. make little Pack nests. Rats. Pack yeah. rats. Exactly. Same. That's the same term, right? Yes. So past tenants, they'd be like, where did my little um, crystal stone go? Or like, where did my, oh. like, where did my coins go? And or or marbles, and this little guy would come up into the house, steal trinkets, all the pretty things, all the pretty things, and then they take the trinkets and they put them in their little nests. That is so cool, isn't that neat? So I have friends in Ohio studying the pack rats because they are dying out. Oh my god! Because of raccoons have a nematode, a roundworm that doesn't kill the What's raccoon, nematode? but uh, a roundworm. It's okay. a parasite. And it has uh, really devastated the Ohio pack rats, the Ohio wood rats. And there, I think there's some genetic variations, but later I'm going to give your name to them because they are reintroducing them. They're trying to do a little hybridization from other states. And they brought one up from Virginia, I think Virginia and Pennsylvania last year. God, that is so but cool. We, you know, I have horses and have horse camped my whole life. And pack rats, they've died out here too. So whatever it is, it's a widespread phenomena. I'm sure there's some, but not like they used to be. And we would have trouble every night camping because you'd finally bed down for the night. You know, your horses, you had all the saddles sitting there and you'd hear them. As soon as it, you lay down, you'd start hearing the sounds here either eating our breakfast, chewing our saddle strings, you know, eating the bridle I was going to need the next day. They were they were rough. Wow. And but they do love the shiny things. They're like crows, you know, they like pretty things and they they make wonderful nests. Okay, well, we've had a great little intro here. Can you tell us who you are and what and what you do? A little bit about yourself. Uh I guess I'm a firefly nerd would be, I think that's why you originally came. We've ended up talking about everything except that. Yes, we have. Um, And I fell into fireflies accidentally. I've I've loved nature since the day I was born. I'm miserable in cities. I'm miserable inside. And I'm so fortunate because I do have a life that I can be 
outside. And so I've always loved nature, but the fireflies uh, happened and they were lightning bugs down here. I had never heard the term. Is there a difference between a firefly and lightning bug or they're just regional? They're the, it's regional differences. And um, that's the, that's why my book has all the names, Mm -hmm. fireflies, lightning bugs, and glowworms, fireflies, glowworms, and lightning bugs. Mm -hmm. Um, It's regional, although that is really blurring now with media and computers as a child in the South, they were lightning bugs. Even I grew up in Northern Virginia, yeah. which was incredibly suburban. Yeah. And, you know, all the families are basically working in Washington, D.C. So we didn't have that, like, um, rich Southern culture right. at all. Yeah. But um, it was were lightning, they lightning bugs. bugs. It was lightning bugs for and, us. An English professor uh, years ago, about 10, 15 years ago, did a map on the linguistics of the word firefly and lightning bug. And it's really, I have the map on my computer. It's really cool. But what has happened recently, and you're going to hear me say the word firefly, which makes me sad because they're lightning bugs. But firefly has one less syllable. And anytime I'm giving a talk or talking about them, that saves me time. I can say firefly easier than lightning bug. Um, But the very first research team I worked with in 19... 92. They were both from up north. And they came down. I remember we met the first night. They didn't know what to make of me. I didn't know what to make of them. We were up in the Smoky Mountains. They didn't even believe what I had reported to them. Uh, But they kept talking about fireflies. And I was 38 years old. And finally, I said, are you talking about lightning bugs? Because <laughs> I truly had not heard the term. Mm. Now, most children around here, mm. and that's what makes me sad, they call them fireflies. Yeah, interesting. Because they've kind of become popular on TV and media, mm-hmm. and that word's easier to say. But they're not flies. Now, are you are you considered the firefly expert in America? Oh, no. Okay. I, d- I don't know who is, but no. Okay. But I One know a little more than most people, so I get over... I hadn't counted this year. But, Over but, three thousand consulting things from movies, museums, universities, grad students, undergrad students, and regular people, and they all can find my email somehow, mm. and some my phone number, and some oh my, my address. And I do try. I still try as hard as I can to answer every single mm. question. But it's, it's. It gets away from me, particularly March through Mm. July, where in a non-corona pandemic year, I'm gone. I'm Mm. traveling from state to state. I'm on different projects, working with scientific research crews or— I'm um, glad I caught you. Or productions, a lot of nature productions. Like a firefly, I caught you. Yeah, you caught me. You caught me this year. It's been a different year. So not only have you worked on two BBC documentaries, the David Attenborough documentaries, Mm -hmm. one is the newest one, which is uh, Seven Worlds, One Planet. Right. And then a few years ago, you did an Attenborough BBC documentary, which is... um, You've done your homework. Something Light on Earth or Life That Glows. It actually has two different titles, depending on where. And then Netflix Netflix this year called... um, uh, (laughs) <laughs> Wait, I'm going blank. It's something after. It's like it's something really dark good. or something. Yeah, dark on Earth. Dark, dark on, on Earth. Earth, and um. And so not only that, but you've written, and it's really good. Yeah, you've written the only guidebook on fireflies. Yes, the only first North American firefly field guide and natural history. So uh, it took seven years to write because there was none. 
And people like lightning bugs. It's one of the few insects people aren't afraid of. They're not trying to kill. They don't spread disease. And people like them almost as much as butterflies. But we have, gosh, on our shelf, I bet I've got 15 butterfly guides. And there was nothing on lightning bugs or fireflies. So I set out to do it. It seemed like a simple idea, and it wasn't. Um, but it's done, and what it has done, it's a, I was thinking I could write it, and then people would quit contacting me with mm. questions. Maybe that was my thinking, and it would save me time, and I wouldn't have to answer all these questions. What it's done, it's exploded exponentially because you have people really getting into it. But I've got people in so many different states now They've got the spark, and they're mm. good, mm. and um, and that's what needs to happen. It can't just be me that can identify one in the field. It needs to be people everywhere, and people need to learn their own little suite of fireflies that live in their area. But it's amazing how many people have grabbed onto it, and then some are professional photographers, mm. and they're taking exquisite photographs. Hmm. Others are extending the range of things um, because in the beginning I've had one complaint. They said, you don't have range maps in there. Now I provide range of all the documented um, instances of a particular species. I cover about 70 species in the book. And at the time I said, I don't want to do a map because we know so little and everyone thinks they're all one firefly and there's 70 species. Exactly. And so I didn't want a map to confine where they're going to look for them. And what's happened, and the book's just been out three years, um, I'm also continuing to do scientific peer-reviewed papers. And we just published one this year that extended the range of one very little-known species by 1,000 miles. But now people can look it up. And, and when it gets right down to the real ID, you sometimes have to dissect them and do microscopic oh, wow. work. And they'll send them to me then. I don't want to go identify so, everybody. So how many species there. are there in America? The number everybody uses is 125. Wow. Some are West Coast only, and most of those don't flash. A few flash, hmm. so that's not many people realize that. There's some flashing in the West Coast all the way to California, but the eastern part of the U.S. is very rich. And um, Now, when I'm looking out at night, you know, it's yeah. been the past month, right? Right. Well, yeah. The, the big months here are May and June. So, yeah. And they start dying out in July. So, when I'm looking at the woods, sitting on my on, on my mm -hmm. back steps, looking out at the woods, am I seeing a variety of species at once? You are. Okay, that's the way it. you've I didn't described your house. You are like in this yard, we can see up to seven species on a given night during the peak times. Wow! And so, but they partition out. If and I'm sure a lot of your listeners are familiar with wildflowers. Oh yes. Um, they're just like wildflowers in that they, each one has a niche and. Some only flash at sunset. Some only oh. flash after dark. Some only flash in March in the treetops. Others oh. only flash in open ground over the grass. Each one, they really don't compete. They may all be flying in the same visual space that we see, but each one has their little thing. And the adults come and go in two to four weeks. So as soon as one species peaks, and they also do the bell curve thing, mm. and as soon as that peak is over and they start declining, which happens 
fairly rapidly. In as little as a day for some species or maybe a week, they peter out. Um, there's another species replacing them, particularly in the really rich areas of the southern U.S. And all the way up through Virginia's got great stuff, too. Mm, so and, uh, and so they, they look like they're all flying together, but they're all doing something different. And, of course, the males, we identify them in the field by the male courtship flash. And so it's the male flash, which is different from each species has their own, and it might be one bright flash every four seconds. Another one might do two flashes every three seconds. I mean, they each have their own little pattern that their female recognizes. And she answers, she's on the ground, and uh, sort of hidden. You don't really see the females that much of most species. There's one notable notable exception. Um, but her flash is not going to be like the males. Hers is usually a generic single or double pulse. And so just knowing if you live in Virginia where you do near the Shenandoah, you've easily, easily have 15 species throughout the year and probably more. So if you need, if you want to ID it, do you need mm -hmm. to isolate one? Do you need to capture it in a jar? Initially, initially, oh, I get so many emails from people going, it flashed in front of my glasses, and it was bright. What was that? And it's like, oh, I have no idea. Um, I do ask people, and please, I don't want everybody starting to send me fireflies. Um, there, there are certain things everyone needs to write down. If they really want to mm -hmm. learn the species, buy my book. Mm -hmm, <laughs> that course. would be the start. Um, but initially, yes, I, you do have to catch them because you've got to know what genus they are because there are actually species that copy other species. Mm -hmm. There is a predatory firefly, and it makes the whole world so interesting because it can copy everyone else's flashes. Mm -hmm. It's only the females. And so you do have to catch what you're seeing initially. But then once you get good, once you've learned your yard, your mm -hmm. porch, mm -hmm. in May, in June, in July, you'll actually have different ones each month, um, pretty soon you can quit catching them. And you go, oh, look, there's a Big Dipper, or there's the Spring Four Flasher, or there are the Bush Babies. They're out now, finally. They, they're one of our last ones to come out here. Um, so to take it back a little bit, yeah. are all lightning bug flashes a courtship Ritual? No, and and that's another, uh, generally, when people tell me they just saw one and it flashed in front of their face and then landed in the grass, you know, what is it? Well, A, I don't know what it was, but you really want to focus, particularly when you're just beginning, on the mass displays. And, and almost all the species have a peak time where the males are more or less close to one another they might not all right, be right there in the same tree, but you'll see them. Everything's doing the same thing. And that's the male courtship flash. And, um, and the end of seasons or the beginning, you, you get these sort of random things that, you know, I don't know. Um, but you focus on what do you have a lot of. Like in the peak time of Big Dippers, this mm -hmm. little bitty yard will have 50 to 60 Big Dippers. Mm -hmm. And they all come out at sunset, and they're real slow, and they do a dip. Like and that's why they're called the big oh, dippers. Okay. And so when their season is going, they're all right there, and that's who you need to figure out who you're seeing because there's a lot of them, and you've got a healthy population, and and they, and then our bush babies start 
start right down there in the driveway. They don't come up here. They're just in the woods. They're mm. a wood creature. Oh, wow. And they have a real quick little flash. And so you, you do get good, and, and I always recommend people start with the obvious ones. Mm. You know, please don't go find some little thing that didn't even flash and try to figure out what it is. And, and so as you get familiar with what you do have, you will then begin to recognize things you've never seen before. Mm. It's like, wait a minute, that one's flashing different. But you do initially need to catch them to get to genus, and I have in the book how you can figure that out. We only have three flashing genera mm. around here. And uh, so you can narrow it down to genus. Then you can start looking at the flash patterns. There are tiny characters um, but I wrote the book as a no-kill book, meaning I really, if you never identify the first one, I don't care. If you just want to sit on your porch with your friends or by yourself and just enjoy the beauty of it, you know, that's awesome. And, and we all need more of that. Oh, yeah. Uh, but I can tell the personalities, and I'm one of them, they're just going to drive them crazy if they don't get a name to put on that thing. Because mm -hmm. as humans, we want to put everything in a category. Mm -hmm. And so those people that rise up, a lot of them are already birders. You're, well, you're like a you're like um, the living embodiment of like a Victorian naturalist, right? <laughs> well, I know. I'm kind of, I guess, in the Without wrong. the killing. Without yeah, the putting without everything the killing. in jars. Yeah, yeah, that bothers me too much. Uh, but it's but the people that are that are going to go that path, they're the ones that I really am thrilled about. And a lot of them are already birders. They are already uh, butterfly collectors, mothers, uh, some of the beetle people, or they run museums. They're already a, na a nature interpreter for either a conservation area, a museum, a state park. And it's fabulous to have them be interested because I can pass on what I know they can take it beyond, but then they're going to teach a lot of other people. Mm, and it will spread the appreciation. And for fireflies, we're all we're all indicator species. You know, a canary in a coal mine, all of us are. But fireflies make really good little ambassadors. Um, they don't. If, if I have 56 mm -hmm. big dippers in my front yard mm -hmm. on June 15th this year, I should, at about the same time of year, have 56 next year. Okay, interesting. And you do have some years are better than others with rainfall and all. But if nothing happens to the habitat, they will be in the same place every year. And they're very predictable on when they come out. I use a degree day model to predict that. And I keep records. I have like thousands of pages of field notes. But they're predictable, and it's something you can start looking forward to. And... um and so they're not at all random. They know what they're doing. We're still figuring it out. Mm. And uh, But it, it's and, a fun thing. So and, people kind of self-separate into they're just going to enjoy them and they're all pretty or the others that just really want to know. And I try to help them. And I've heard you say, so they're all fireflies. They're a beetle. Yes. Fireflies are not a fly. And they're also not a true bug, like lightning bug. They are in the beetle family. Okay. They're all beetles. And it goes with complete metamorphosis, everything you learned in high school biology. They're an egg, a larvae, a pupa, and finally an adult. So they're adult phase, and there's an exception to everything I'm saying, but I'm trying okay. to speak in generalities today. Uh the adult phase is the sh one of the shortest phases of their life. Everybody goes, oh, they die so quick. Well, actually, that little firefly has been alive one to two years before it ever becomes an adult. Mm. 
So the eggs of this summer become the adults of next summer here in Tennessee. If you live up in Boston, it might be two or three years because their growing season is half as long as ours. And so it, it actually, there's a gradation through the United States as you go north. So, so you might, the firefly you see today might have been an egg two or three years ago. So it, it depends on where they live. Where you get down south, you know, they can sure. mature pretty quickly. Does anybody eat the fireflies? No, you really shouldn't. They're filled with uh, I mean, I mean, animals. Oh, animals? Yeah, birds or anything like that. Most For the same reason, humans, I, I just want to say, don't eat them, okay? <laughs> the, the estimate eaten, is I've 10 fireflies can kill a grown man because of Repeat the defensive. That. As little as 10 fireflies. It is thought, I don't have the proof or the citation, but... It's written quite a bit. I actually have it in my book. Um, as few as 10 fireflies has the enough cardenolides, and that's a heart toxin. It's like digitalis, to kill a man, a grown man. And so you really, but most people don't eat them because they don't taste good. It's that lightning bug smell are defensive chemicals. So throughout nature, most birds, most bats, most frogs, they do not eat them. They'll eat one. They'll eat that first one, and then they'll spit it out. And there are a lot of interesting scientific studies on that, but everyone detects that uh, the cardinalides, they're called Lucy Bufigans, which is just a great word, Lucy Bufigan. Um, and it was named that because bufo frogs also have toxins, and so this was toxins with light, Lucy Bufigans, oh, kind of like the toad toxins with light. Um, but they're very powerful toxins. Do you think, do you think in the history of people in on this continent, any like Appalachian witch or, you know, indigenous uh -huh. person has poisoned someone with lightning bug toxin? It could be. Now, in the country of Brunei, there, and I have this little tale in my book, um, there is a folk belief that I believe it was every Friday night, each man in the village would eat one firefly. And because they believed it made them brighter. Mm -hmm. You know, kind of like the lightning bugs bright. And um, do you mean smart or like um, uh, spiritually smart, smart, sharp? Okay, sharp. And um, but it was always one, and they stress that one only one. And so, have they been used? That's a good question. Could be, you know, could be. But they also, I've got a scientific paper on it. Um, they utilize milkweed. We don't know oh. how, but. Similar to monarchs, yes. so probably a lot of your listeners are familiar with monarchs. You may have noticed I've got milkweed oh, yeah, planted I see it right all there. over the place, and um, but fireflies appear to utilize it also. And milkweed is is a great one for <laughs> the uh, for the people who are doing the foraging. I've I've eaten mm -hmm. a bunch of milkweed, like the flower really? buds when it's just flower buds. Yeah, you can cook that up, and it almost is. I don't know what. How Be you careful! It. It's got the cardenolides in it too. Um. Yeah, Sam Thayer is a big forager, and he has huh. a book, and he kind of, um, I guess, dispels some of this sphere yeah. of milkweed. But I do, I follow a lot of, um, you know, herbalists and foragers yeah. and yeah. wild food folks, yeah. and milkweed is becoming a popular one. Wow. Yeah. Okay. It's really interesting. I mean, you cook it. <laughs> I you don't need to eat look in that. Okay. Yeah. The cardinalides are real, and okay. if you have a heart problem, they can speed it up. 
or okay. slow it down and do scary things. But and and they have found cardinalides in the blossoms and leaves because I ha- that was part of my paper. I had to go to all the scientists and make that. But it's differing degrees, and it's in, it definitely does stuff. So I can see medicinal. Hmm. It does stuff. But if your heart feels funny, I, I wouldn't eat any more. I'll have to milkweed. look into that one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but okay. it's a fascinating plant. But there's all sorts of. Okay, so I think from studying some of your videos and, mm. and your lectures, um, so how did you get into this? From what I gather, you noticed a certain lightning bug that mm-hmm. no one else was talking about. We used to have a cabin in the Smokies in the Elkmont on the Tennessee side of the Smokies called Elkmont. I grew up there. My grandparents grew up there in the summers. It was really a cool place. It predated the park. And uh, we all had to leave that community. It was on the historic register. There were 88 structures. It was such a cool place. My kids grew up there just running wild. Um, But in 1992, through a long story that dated back to the formation of the park in 1940, we had to leave the cabins. And we knew that. I mean, we had known that for years, and it was a source of grief because it was a whole lifestyle of spending the summers up in the Smokies, and it was such a blessing, you know, to everybody that got to do that. But um, if you've ever had a loved one dying and you know in advance, say they have cancer, they have a progressive thing, for us, we watched Elkmont die for the final 10 years. We knew we were losing it. Many of the cabins were from the logging days, the pre-park days, and the structures remained, and then people built onto them. They were all funky. I mean, they were neat little cabins, but every one of them just rickety, not insulated. Everything was always broken, but they were so they were so charming, and we loved it. And generations, like we would have four generations there every weekend, all crammed on top of each other. Um, but anyway, it was a very special place. And as we knew, everything was ending. And so you try to really pay attention and really soak it in because you know you're not going to have it much longer. And for years, my mother-in-law had, like since the 60s, she, and I had this great mother-in-law, Emily. And she would organize. She rarely was forceful about anything. You just wanted to do what Emily wanted you to do because you loved her so much. But the one time she'd get forceful would be after dinner in June. And we'd all be at the big picnic table eating, and she'd look at her watch and go, okay, the light show's going to begin in 20 minutes, and we need to be organized. Get the babies in their jammies, get the dishes up, turn the lights off. And so she was the leading force of forcing us all to stop what we were doing. And we often were wrapped in blankets. It's kind of cooler up there, which is really nice. It's at about 2,300 feet. And um, we had a huge screened-in back porch that faced us out of a mountain. And we would wrap in blankets and get the babies, either put them down or be holding them. And she'd turn all the lights out. And it gives you a reverence and a quietness. Everybody instantly gets quieter. And she'd say, okay, I think it's going to begin pretty soon. So I credit her. She was paying enough attention to know it only happened a certain time of the year and it happened a certain time of night. And so at about 9.30, generally, it would begin. The light, she called it the light show. And it's the most mesmerizing, beautiful, thousands and thousands of males flashing in synchrony and then six seconds of dark. And then they start up again. 
and and it would go on. And and it makes you tired. It makes you sleepy. It makes you very relaxed and peaceful watching it. And one by one, it, same thing happened every night. Just suddenly, people drifted off because you're watching it. You're enveloped in this beauty. And then you think, I think I'll go lay down. <laughs> and there's a stream, so you hear the water and all that. It was a great spot. And uh, so we realized that final couple of years, here I live 40 miles away in the valley, and we've got tons of lightning bugs here, but we had never seen what Elkmont had down in the valley. And I started paying attention to that. It's like, wait a minute, not only are we losing this, I've never seen this except here. And uh, so I started looking into it. And again, science has always been my interest anyway. And at the time, I got a magazine called Science News Magazine. And on the cover of it, I guess in 1991, was an article uh, written in Malaysia about synchronous fireflies. They had a picture of a Malaysian firefly tree, which I've been lucky enough to see the Asian ones also to kind of compare all the lightning bugs. And um, I thought, oh, I wonder if they mention our Elkmont ones. I'll read this article. So I read the article. There was no mention except one sentence saying, there are no synchronous fireflies in the Western Hemisphere. It's like, well, yeah, there are. And um, so that began a journey of taking me from just sitting in a blanket in my rocking chair, just enjoying the natural beauty, to trying to figure out if anyone else knew, any real people, meaning universities or professors or entomologists. So my search led me first to the park, and they were did not know, and they knew I was from Elkmont. They didn't know. They didn't know. And uh, then I went to UT, then I found a naturalist who had lived at Elkmont for years. He had never written about it. And, um, and pretty soon I realized no one seemed to know about it. And, um, and so, that's 90, so that took us to 92 when the first scientific team came that called them fireflies <laughs> instead of lightning bugs. So I told them when to come and where to stand, and they got there a little early before dark, and I could feel the skepticism. <laughs> Gosh, and they were looking at me, and they're, they're from the north, and they were pretty sure I was some crazy southern hillbilly. And uh, and suddenly I thought, well, when do they start? I wish they'd start. And they start like clockwork. They have a very strong circadian rhythm. It's got to be a certain level of dark, certain time. And um, I was so relieved. You know, that first night they kept looking at me like they had wasted all this time coming down, and I'd wondered, have I wasted their time? Now, that's been 30 years, so I've gotten much better at predicting now. Now, what are you? Are you a naturalist citizen scientist? I don't know what I am. You can call me whatever you want. It has evolved through the years. But, so, um, but the, my point is that you're a, if you're a citizen scientist, that there's room for people who are just passionate to make scientific discoveries. Oh, there's huge room. I get most of my best reports from people who just love nature and are observant and know enough to know when they see something different. But they're the ones outside. You know, the, the professors are, are brilliant, and I've worked with so many. A lot of them are my great friends, and I admire them so much. I've written papers with them. But they're busy teaching classes, writing proposals for grants, getting the money for the grants, uh, doing the grad students. They really start losing, once they're not a grad student themselves, they don't have the time 
to be out every night wandering around, seeing what species lives where. I mean, that's just a fact of life, but the citizen scientists, you know, that's sort of a new name. It used to just be a nature nut or somebody like being outside. They're the ones out there watching. And um, I'm working with the Xerces Society right now. They're doing a whole write-up on all the North American fireflies. A lot, not just me, a lot of people are working with them. We're all a group. But right now, this particular week, they're working on Arizona fireflies. Now, I've never been to Arizona. I know a little bit about them, but I hadn't been to Arizona. But I know people who love the Arizona fireflies, and they are not professors. They are not in academia. They are the naturalists out there every night. So they are now hooked up with the Xerces Society with some of these very rare Arizona species, giving them site locations when they come out, what time of night they fly, what is their flash pattern. But th- and, this is a huge point. Yeah. That it takes passionate, eccentric people to, oh, absolutely. to go out there and focus in on something that they care about. And yes. that's that literally can be beneficial, I mean, to I everyone. guess, to everybody. Right. Because you have been pursued, or, well, you have been possessed by this cause. Yeah. And without yeah. you, we wouldn't have this guidebook. So yeah. it takes it takes people like you who to, it's just so inspiring. Yeah. If you're really interested, oh, you can go out there and you can make a difference. Right. And particularly if you pick, I have a friend that picks snails. She said, I need something. And, uh, and she's already a biologist, already really sharp. And she's now the expert of snails in this area because no one else was doing it and I discovered it. lots of new species that are here and all of that. And so any, I try to encourage that in anyone that crosses my path. That is so worthwhile. And I actually have it in the book is how important local knowledge is. And a lot of, uh, yeah, well, some some. A few academia, they just totally won't listen if you are not one of them. And it's like, man, there's so much knowledge out here. And even folktales, you need to listen. You need to listen. And there's all sorts of knowledge there. And uh, and so it's a resource where everybody works together. But I think the whole world is getting better about that. Mm. In fact, well, the, the internet last, helps, right? Yeah, yeah, and yeah, and you can communicate easier and all that. But the last two peer-reviewed papers I've done wanted a citizen science component, mm. and so they actually use the term. Mm. And it's like, well, I use whoever I can get. Whoever will go out there and look for me, then I can come. But uh, it's very important, the partnerships. And um, there's another, there's a great paper. I could, it's, it's not going to come to my mind right now, but it's called carpooling. It's mm. the concept of carpooling in science discovery. And it's exactly what you just said. You get the naturalist, the academic, um, the local farmer, you know, whoever is out there near whatever you're studying, they all have important information to to have input. That's so, so it's beautiful. called carpooling. You put them all together in one place, then you write the paper. I love that. Yeah, and it's a it's a neat concept. So So you mentioned Firefly folklore. Yes. Is there anything super interesting you want to share? I read a bit in the front of your book right. about how there's Apache uh, folklore, um the Mayans even oh yeah had the some native myths. yeah. So if you, all around the world, but the one this is brand new, okay. and I just made the connection three days ago. Okay, and so I think it's so cool, and I'm not sure if I'll be able to succinctly explain it, but it's so cool to me. Okay, we moved out here in the '70s, 
and we bought part of Rosalie Hewitt's farm, which is where you're hearing the noises come from. So they owned both sides of the road, this family. Rosalie had 11 children, and she was such a neat lady. So when we moved out here in the 70s, she was already quite elderly. She held musicals at her little house on Friday nights where all the really old people with fiddles and wash tubs and guitars would come, and they included us. So we were outsiders moving in in that time. I think that, so I watched a documentary about um, mountain talk. Mm. And so outsiders in Appalachia, the phrase is a jasper. Oh, so I never heard that. I guess we were Jaspers because we were we weren't from the valley. <laughs> but anyway, but Granny, uh, we just got along great, and she was so cool. And so I asked her in those days, and I have notes somewhere squirreled away. You know what? Uh, what about our side of the road that we ended up buying? Was there anything I needed to know? And she told me about a swinging bridge down on the creek that used to cross. That see, it's called Couch Mill. There used to be a ford in a mill down there where you stuck your feet in this morning. And, um, and and other interesting things. And then she said, and this is the 70s. This is before I ever knew anything about lightning bugs other than they were pretty and I used to catch them in jars. Um, she said, well, now, Lynn, there is the blue ghost. And she said, it lives on the back part of your property. I said, what do you mean the blue ghost? She said, well, there's a blue ghost down there. And she said, I've only seen it once, but if you don't go out at night, you'll be okay. (laughs) And I said, but what do you mean a blue ghost? She said, well, before the lake was dammed up, our, our lake is called Melton Hill Lake, but it's actually the Clinch River. And TVA, you know, owns all the shoreline and everything. And so in the 30s, they backed up all the wild running rivers and Mountain Hill Lake was formed, and when the lake was backed up, it sent the water all the way up our creek. That's why it's so big down there. It's really more lake-like than a creek. It becomes a creek another half mile up, but you can't see it. It's around a bend. But anyway, when the lake was backed up, there had been a cave on the, sh- the banks of Beaver Creek. There had been a cave, and in the cave was a moonshine still. Now, this is in the 30s. And, um, and everyone knew about it. It was kind of the local still. And, but someone told somebody, and the revenuers, the revenuers, as they called them, got wind that the still was there. And um, so they were going to come raid it. Well, the guys that owned the still were kind of related to everybody around here, and they got wind that the revenuers were coming. This is the story Granny told me in the 70s. And so the moonshine still owners rigged the entire cave with dynamite with a tripwire that when the revenuers came to raid, it would blow up. And it did. And so according to Granny, the blue ghost is the souls and the spirits of the revenuers who were killed. And so that one area, that's the only area she warned me about, you know, just watch out because the blue ghost, I said, what do you mean it's blue? She said, it's bluish. She said, I've seen it. It's bluish. And um, and I always, I love ghost stories. I love that. I think, you know, I think there's a lot of stuff we're not aware of or we're so disconnected these days. So I always like the thought of the blue ghost, but I'm out at night a lot. And I have thought of it before, I think, you know, and I thought I've really 
never seen the blue ghost. And I'm down in those woods a lot at night. And it hit me this week. How many years have I been doing fireflies? If you look in my book, there's the blue ghost. That's the name of it, the blue ghost firefly. And it's most people's second or third species, they easily learn and they love it. And in fact, the Netflix production features blue ghosts, and you'll see them if, if you look at that one, the Night on Earth, Dark on Earth. Night on Earth. I can't believe I forgot the name of it. They change names during production. Anyway, I realize all these years, we have a large population of blue ghosts on the backside of the property. And it's exactly where she said she had seen the blue ghosts, which are the spirits of the revenuers. And I thought her folktale, which I never could historically find out if, you know, revenuers had died at the base of our property back in the 30s. I never could really find that. And now with Internet, you know, maybe someday I will. But I, I knew when she told me she was telling me something she believed to be totally true because she had seen it with her own eyes. And a blue ghost, instead of flashing, it glows very dimly, and it just floats over the surface of the ground. And it, it is very spooky if you don't know what you're looking at. And sometimes they'll even shine their light on your shoes. I've seen people just start dancing. It's like, what's that on my shoe? And it's the male pointing his, his lantern, and he just makes this eerie glow. And I thought that story was... You know, in her way, she was telling me, yeah, there are blue ghosts back there. And um, so I just love that story because I thought even the common name is the same. It's a blue ghost. They're actually green, you know, if you want to get real scientific. But for some reason, when they're kind of far away, it's a diffuse. It's not like a bright flash. It's very diffuse. The older you are, the bluer it looks. And if you're holding one in your hand, it looks green. But um, the blue ghost name has been around for years, and people can recognize them very quickly because nothing else does that. Everything else flashes or it's up in the tree or it's, you know, it's doing something different. It looks yellow. It looks green. But the blue ghost is the one eerie, eerie thing. That is so goddamn cool. And (laughs) not only do I love ghost stories, but are you saying that the granny would not have been aware that there is a firefly called? Oh, absolutely would be Totally unaware of that. Unbelievable. So yeah. I've se- I've seen I've caught wind of this quite often with mm-hmm. folk tales. Yeah, that there's, oh, there's a kernel some kind, of truth. A kernel truth. Yeah. There's an unconscious collective knowledge about something larger. Yes. I, we just watched, and I hope I'm saying this right. We just watched a documentary that was on YouTube about coyotes, and it's talking about some of the Native Americans. You know, of course, coyotes, the trickster god, mm-hmm. and I and. I'm not sure if this is accurate, but I think sometimes he's kind of also a creator god. Not sure about that. But I think they were saying that there are these legends that coyote is the is like the oldest species. It's it's one of the oldest mm. creatures, like the first animal. Mm. And I think in this documentary it said that coyote is one of the oldest wow. um, mammals in, in North America. Yeah. I think that's accurate. So, that would fit so I'm like, with it. well, here you go. How yeah. the hell would you catch wind of this in your stories? And like how, and this is something I've caught with this podcast, just kind of, you know, talking with herbalists, they'll sit with a plant and they'll just kind of enter into an intuitive space Mm -hmm. and see if they gather some kind of intuitive information from the plant. And, you know, it can sound, you know, quote unquote, speaking to a plant. And this is unbelievable. So is this how humans have always existed? They've kind of caught wind of, information that we prove thousands of years later through science just by being in the 
being open and in the presence and be living in this kind of, um, you know, living in a more imaginative realm than the yeah, modern and they were out man. more. Yeah. They were in nature more. We're mm. so separated from it. God, that's and, cool. But it just, I thought, why did it just now take me 40 years to go, Granny knew exactly what she was saying. And as a little girl, if she had been there, if you see something like this, and I told you I have an article coming out in a yes. South Carolina yes. Wild magazine next month. It's the same thing. They're called the Low Country Ghost. And so it's the same genus, another weirdly floating thing. And there's so many wonderful Low Country spirit tales. And so my article that I wrote is saying they probably are related. These people, all these folk tales of boo daddies and hags and plat eyes, they come from something originally real. And if you've got the spooks and you're out in the woods alone at night and you see that first blue ghost, that blue floaty thing that's coming at you, you're out of there. You're not going to go, oh, I think I'll catch this and see what it is. You're going to go, that's a spirit and I'm out of here. Does it glow brighter than the normal fireflies? No, it glows less. It's less. very, so you see it, particularly the low country one. Our blue ghosts are fairly visible. Um, they are visible. And, but if you don't know what you're seeing, mm-hmm. it does look like a spirit. Oh, wow, that's so Yeah, cool. and, and. Does it hold the light longer than oh, a lot of the Oh, it will stay on over a minute. I mean, it oh, just my. floats okay. and glows. So the Netflix Night on Earth or dark, I can look it up in a second. Um, but they have it, and they captured it for the first time. They actually did a, a very good job because it's difficult to video it because they are dim. And even the most sophisticated video uh, cameras are still not able to pick up what our eyes see, although they're getting close. In mm-hmm. the last two years, some amazing footage, that last Attenborough thing and this Netflix, they had some amazing cameras. But um, it's it's uh, so so there is a ghost like quality, even that you can see it, but then you try to film it and it's not there. And everybody tries to take pictures of cell phone, it doesn't work. It's just not there. So it is ghost like, and we just are calling it different things now. We're interpreting it differently because we kind of know what we're seeing. But I have found all over the world, not all over the world, not just rural South, you know, 80 years ago, but many people don't go out at night, and it's it's part of their culture. I mean, they may go out to check on the cow or to do something, but they aren't wandering around the woods, and you wouldn't. I mean, in those days, you got snake bit at night, you'd be dead, or, you know, there were a lot more wild animals and all of that stuff, and so there were reasons and uh, the Bahamas is, the Bahamians will not, and we had a place there for 30 years. It blew away in Dorian. We lost friends. last This time last year was horrible, September. Um, but uh, I've tried to get, because I've done a lot of studies with fireflies in, in the Bahamas, you can't get anybody to go out at night and look. It's like, could you just go look for me in February? Right here, I'll tell you where to stand. It's like, nope. Wow. <laughs> and But it's in their culture, and... And you go out and the mosquitoes eat you alive and everything. You know, there's reasons for it. But usually I have found and believe that most folk cultures and myths or stories, they do have a basis of truth. And we need to pay more attention. Instead of going, oh, well, that's just 
folklore. It's like, no, it's based on something. It came from somewhere. And in my book, I mentioned the Arlomos from Mexico. And they believe there's a certain firefly-like larvae. They don't really call it a firefly, but they're not sure, but it glows. They can make you sick. And um, and I said right at the beginning, everybody likes fireflies because they don't hurt you. They don't carry disease. It's never been, you know, nothing bad comes from fireflies. But I learned of the Arlomo custom, and then all the way around the world in Cambodia, the same belief was told to me. By, you know, so here you are half a world away. They believe they call it the elephant firefly, and I write about it in there. And they're these huge larvae, I've seen them, and they are scary looking. They almost look like a scorpion instead of a firefly larvae, and they glow, but they believe that they can bite you and make you sick. And so I thought, okay, we've got two places halfway around the world, they got the same belief. Is there something to this? What's the belief? And the belief is that the firefly larvae can bite you and make you sick okay. or die. Well, and, so so I'm very much into Carl Jung's work, who is mm-hmm. a, a psychoanalyst, and he's very into dreams. Mm-hmm. And so one of his um, students, Marie-Louise von Franz, and I mean, when you hear this woman talk, she's deceased. Mm-hmm. But when you hear her talk, sometimes it's like you're in the presence of an oracle. She's like, oh, wow. she's unbelievable. Yeah. Um, but she wrote, she wrote a lot of books dissecting fairy tales. And so their thought is that fairy tales are the collective dreams. Mm. So folk tales would be the collective the, dreams. Yes. And so just as in our personal dreams, there's, there's grains of truth. And if you're into Jungian work, like I am, you study your dreams to find the symbolic yeah. meaning. Yeah. In the same sense, the fairy tales that have collective meanings. So that's very cool. It's and, that's yeah, beautiful. it's it's um so I always pay attention. I never blow anything off. Now I did interview quite a few Cherokees cuz that's uh the Native Americans closest to us and it's kind of infused through this whole area. So yeah, for the, so the, book, the Cherokee the the their um their lands was Southern Appalachia, right? Right. So it's North Carolina all the way down to Georgia, I believe. Yeah. And they and were all, they were like the Smoky Mountain tribe. Right. And that, yeah, they were all throughout there. So the the Great Smoky Mountain National Park displaced them. But that had already had, you know, the Trail of Tears happened way before that. Very tragic story. But um, I spent a good bit of time over in Cherokee asking for elders, trying to find where they're... I couldn't believe that the Cherokee did not have some amazing beliefs about the fireflies because this synchronous one at Elkmont is throughout the Smokies, so definitely on Cherokee lands, and still on Cherokee lands. They still retain land, and I'd seen them. I knew they were there. It's like, how did they not have this in their belief system where... Uh, Western, a good many Western Native American tribes have great firefly stories, and they don't even have that many out there. But here in the East, where we have tons of different species, including the blue ghost, including the synchronous, there were no tales. And I couldn't, uh, Moody wrote a book in the 1800s uh, detailing the cultural beliefs of the Cherokees. It's like a real classic. There was nothing in there. They had spider stories. They had dragonfly stories. They had insect stories, just nothing about fireflies. Fascinating. And it got back to, um, and then uh, Chief Jerry Wolf, who sadly, I just learned last month that he had died a year or so ago, but he was kind of the elder. He was one that was trying to get the uh, Sequoia's language not to die out, and so they're teaching it again. He was a neat guy, and um, I spent some time with him and his daughter, and he said 
there's no beliefs. There's no beliefs. Wow. And they show he uh, and then later another elder did write what the name was. They had a name, but there were no beliefs. And I've often wondered, were they so sacred? I was just going to say that. That they didn't share it. It's like there are some and, traditions where God is nameless. Yeah, and they weren't going to share it with the guy named Moody in the 1800s. No they way. just That was sort of a really— sa- So that's me making it up. But when yeah. you see Native American to- tales all around here and not not right there— And I left it. I thought, well, it's it might have died out by now because a lot of the beliefs have died out. But then it was funny. I was uh, interviewing one lady, uh, Myrtle Wolf. Myrtle, turtle. Anyway, she was a character, and she said, yeah, we have lightning bug stories. And she said the boys would smear them all over their face, and it would make their faces glow green, and they'd chase the little kids. And I love that story. I thought, well, that's what's been done all over the world. But she, you know, so so by the time Myrtle, who was my age, was a child, it was, they were just looking at lightning bugs just like, Every child does. No, I, I, you know, I haven't killed one since being a kid, and obviously we're not condoning. But if you smush them, does yeah, the, the it glow? Will glow. Mm-hmm. And do you have to catch it when it's glowing? To... No, because okay. once you, they glow in death, and oh. so if they're caught in a spider web or in the Smokies, where three thousand people a night go to see them, and you walk out late at night, you'll find glowing things on the ground where they've been stepped on, mating couples. It just breaks my heart. That Uh, scene, that scene in the documentary on the BBC mm. um, with uh, uh, the new documentary, which is Seven Worlds, Worlds, One One Planet, Planet. the North American episode, it has that scene where the fireflies are getting caught. I think it's an orb spider. spider webs, yeah. Uh, And and they're they're caught in the spider web. And they're all flashing in the web, and yeah. it's like so magical. Yeah, and that we've actually found that by flashing, it then attracts more males. And sometimes these spiders actually move them into the center of the web to wow. so they'll catch more. They won't like go on the outside. Wow. But anyway, yes, they do. Yeah, we don't want everybody out there catching them no. and smearing them. But particularly the predatory species is much larger than most of the other ones, just like a predator anywhere, and uh, they glow green, and they make the best things to smear on your face if you're going to be a little child scaring the little ones. Do you want to talk briefly about the predatory firefly? Um, I can. It's it's a whole world into itself. Um, the Futurist species, I'm not going to use a bunch of science, scientific names, but it's I'm going to call it the predatory, but this entire genus, with a couple of exceptions— the females of this genus are predatory, and meaning they specialize on other fireflies. They're not out there eating mosquitoes and ants. They catch other fireflies. And because of that, these females can vary their flashes. They can copy almost every other species out there. So that's one reason when people go, what did I see? I don't have a picture of it. I don't have information. I said, I have to see what you saw. You know, I've got to see one. You can let it go. Take a picture with your cell phone and let it go because the predatory females can look like everybody else. And to to interject, let me know if I'm wrong. The majority of fireflies, they don't eat for the entire time, the whole flashing time. But the predatory one is eating other fireflies. Yes, correct. Yes, and I should have said that. Adult fireflies generally do not eat. And is that the same with moths? Uh, most moths don't eat either, that, but I'd hate to say that because okay. I'm not a moth expert. Sure, I have sure. a friend that I could call her right now and she'd tell you, no, that's okay. but some of them do sip nectar though. Okay. 
So, yeah, fireflies are different. They don't need to eat. They can live their whole life and never eat. And see, we also find them on milkweed, but Mm -hmm. they don't have to have that, we don't think. But anyway, okay, so the female predatory firefly lures them in by pretending to be the female of another sex or a male. They also do aerial hawking, it's called, and fly within groups of males and grab them. And, uh, I mean, it's something. They're smart. And... um, and so they eat them not so much for the nutrition. We don't think there's been tons of papers about this. It's to acquire the defensive chemicals that the other ones have more of. Mm. And so they eat them to get the chemicals. They put those chemicals in their eggs, which helps protect their eggs from being eaten. Okay. So they're making their species less palatable than yes. to any birds or anything yeah. like that. Yeah. Oh, that is fascinating. Oh, it's fascinating. And they're they're so darn smart, and they can vary. And even the males of that, and they'll eat their own males. Mm-hmm. And so whereas you get a regular, I keep talking about the Big Dippers, but they're right here. They're easy to talk about. It's kind of a good name. The Big Dippers, when they mate, um, and there's a lot of male competition, it's not easy to be a firefly and find a mate. No easier than being a human and finding a good mate. But anyway, they work hard. That's all they do as adults. And when they do find the mate, they might copulate for over 12 hours. Mm, I mean, nice. once they find them, it goes on it's all night. Run. And they think it's a form of mate guarding in one way. That male doesn't want another male to get her that night because it could be that his sperm would win out. And they have spermatophores and all these intricate nuptial gifts, all sorts of cool stuff. But anyway, they made a long time. How do they mate? Hmm? How do they mate? Well, they actually have two mating stages. They have stage one, which is doggy style. This is generally speaking. Yeah. Uh huh. Wow. And that's when I say we sometimes have to dissect things for positive ID. The male genitalia is the gold standard. For many species, like you may think you know what you have, and then you dissect the ediagus, it's called, which is the male penis. You dissect it out, and it's like, oh, wait a minute. This wasn't what I thought it was. Um, Very time-consuming. That's why I said, please, people, don't send me all your fireflies to dissect. But once in a while, when you have a mystery, a very rare one you're looking for, you know, that is called into play. But, okay, so the Big Dippers mate 12 hours, and that's not unusual. The Paractamina will mate up to eight days. That Ooh, was my wow. record mating. Wow. I just kept going, wow. And he really was mate guarding that whole time. He didn't want to disengage because he didn't want, I mean, I'm putting thoughts in his mind, but yeah. the male doesn't want somebody else to yeah. come. So that's how long they can copulate. The faturists, the predatory females who also eat their own males, will mate. You rarely see a mating in the wild. I see other matings all the time. You rarely see it because it's so quick. It will last less than five seconds. Mm. The male is nervous the entire time. Oh yeah, yes. Because she, you know, as soon as she gets what she needs, Femme she's just as apt to turn around and grab him and eat him. Oh, and so they're ready at all times to fly away. Wow. And it, yeah, it's really fascinating. It so really she's fascinating. Uh, not picky. She'll eat any of them. But they also think, sort of an interesting thing to think about, there are no records outside of the Western Hemisphere of this happening. It's just our American, it does happen in North and South and Central America. It happens in the Americas. Doesn't happen in Asia as far as we know. So they feel like the Faturus genus has been a real driving force of evolution in the Americas because 
you can't just grow up and find a mate and lay eggs. You also have to figure out how to avoid being eaten each mm. night and how to recognize your female. And so we've done, uh, we have a paper on landing distance. Like how close does the male land to the female when he finds her? And what we found in almost every species of the non-predatory ones, the male never lands on top of the female, even though she's answering like crazy and they have a dialogue going on. He flashes, she flashes, he flashes, she flashes, and he'll circle, circle, but he always lands about six inches away. Mm. And we realize it's a protective thing because a lot of the time that beautiful female answering is not his female at all. It's a predatory female. Oh, my God. And so through through time and evolution, they have figured out, don't land right on her because she'll eat him. Mm. And so they land on the ground and then continue a private dialogue. And I've seen a lot of males will suddenly take off because something's not quite right. The, the predatory females are good. They're good mimics, but they're not exact. And so... These males, you know, it's really amazing. We think little insects is not being real smart, but, man, they're smart. And they can detect stuff that we can't even see. That's really fascinating. Yeah. So what? Um, it's a dog-eat-dog dog world out there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, changing topics a little bit. Um, what was it like working on these documentaries? And did you meet David Attenborough? Yeah. 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 It's, so what uh, was he like? It's really fun. The documentaries, um, I've actually done them for the last 15 years. So I've done a lot of different ones. Um, I was going to be with National Geo this year, but the coronavirus canceled it. And um, it sounds sort of more glamorous than it is, but mm -hmm. it is really fun. Um, the teams all seem to be from Bristol, England, okay. and they're all hired out by Netflix, by Discover, by Nat Geo, you know, by whoever. And... Um, uh, without exception, every team, and it's intense. That's when I said I didn't get enough sleep. Mm -hmm. We were staying up all night every night. They yeah, were so, all. I realized at one point. Um, <laughs> so one, are you their guide? Yeah, I'm their guide. I tell them when to come. I tell them where to stand. I identify the species. If they have any questions, I keep them alive during the day if we're doing any studio work. So you're, you're busy all the time. Um, it's very intense. Did you show David Attenborough stuff he'd never seen before? Yeah, it was cool. And he, just working with him was so amazing. You do a lot a lot of his films, they fly him in and do the speaking parts, you know, and all that. But he goes out in the field and um and so we were already up there. We had already been up there working, seeing we were up in Pennsylvania actually for that part of the shoot. And um we And so they were going to fly him into Philadelphia, which if you aren't familiar, we were in the Alleghenies of Pennsylvania. Mm. It's a six-hour drive. Mm. And David Attenborough at that time was 91, I believe. Whoa. Oh, I mean, he's amazing. And so think of yourself if you had done this. They flew him from England, landed in Philadelphia, put him in a car, drove him six hours. So his time zone, he oh, was yeah. exhausted. Got him there, fed him lunch with a bottle of red wine, because he likes a bottle of red wine with meals, and then stuck him out in the woods, you know, to do the script. And the poor guy, it was like, and my job, the first, and, and I thought, I knew I was going to be starstruck. You know, it was like, oh, cool, I get to meet David Attenborough. Um, I really thought all the sound people and the videographers, you know, I thought, well, they'll be cool with it, because they're cool. You know, they do this all the time. 
everyone was just a little bumbling mess. It was so funny. Everyone was in awe, and he didn't disappoint. He was such a gentleman. He was so professional, but he was so tired. Oh, God. And it, I think it was 3 in the afternoon we started that first day. And my job, one of the the producers came up. He said, he doesn't know you, so he's going to be polite to you. Make him sit down when he's not standing there doing his lines. Mm. Make him sit down. Because we were all worried. And, uh, I mean, you'd be worried about anybody that had just done England, Philadelphia, six car rides, a heavy lunch, and then you're supposed to perform. He had never seen the script until that day. But uh, he was in there practicing it during lunch. And uh, he he did have trouble that day. And he wouldn't sit down. I'd say, Sir David, (laughs) this is such a nice chair. Come sit with me. And he'd sit down for about... Two seconds, and he popped back up because he was nervous. He wanted, yeah. you know, he was he was on. He wanted to do his thing. And finally, um, we did several takes, and he was tired. I said, why are we doing this today? Yeah. I just want to interject. Yeah. I, you know, I don't know much about this, but this man needs to rest. And so we stopped for the afternoon. We did the night shot. He did great. Mm. And, and we were down a riverbank. So 91 years old, it had been raining. It was cold. Up there in Pennsylvania, it's cold in June. It can be. So we all had jackets on. And while I was using a walking stick. I didn't want to slip into the river. He wouldn't use a walking stick, and he wouldn't put a jacket on because earlier— he had been in shirt sleeves. And if you notice, they always wear the same thing. Of course. So here the rest of us are in down jackets, and here's Sir David, <laughs> 91, so cool. uh, no jacket on, and he went down that riverbank like a little goat. I mean, he was amazing. He That's got to be a highlight from your life. Oh, it, it, it was so fun. I've got a picture. I don't guess I have it in the book, but a picture sitting on the couch with him. But every morning— and then we'd get in at night, and we have to do camera stuff or take care of fireflies. Are you camping, or are you staying No, in- we were staying in a bed and breakfast. Okay, cool. Uh, yeah, up in Tynesta, Pennsylvania. The Butlers, um, Black Caddis, they're really nice people and nice place. Um, but a lot of times it'd be three or four when we got to bed, and invariably every morning— You'd come down, kind of stumble downstairs because you didn't get enough sleep and go find your tea or coffee. Sir David would be completely dressed, working on his lines, having his cup of tea. I mean, he had been up before anyone, and he had stayed up past everybody. So he's an amazing guy. That is yeah, so he, cool. It, it was a real honor to work with him. That is so cool. But all of the crews, without exception, all these years that every crew I've worked with, the professionalism is astounding. That's and awesome. they are so serious about what they do and so careful, even to the level of fireflies, of no unnecessary harm. Mm. And that that has always been there, but in recent years, more so. They make a point that this insect will not die. And that means a lot to me because I, I have trouble collecting them just for our our interests, you know, and they're going to die for nothing. But really, most of the ones we shoot, we release them. Now, so sometimes cool. they're worn out because they've made it a hundred times mm-hmm. or the spiders attacked them or whatever. They don't all make it. But um, one of the videographers, I remember a number of years ago, it was late. We all wanted to go to bed. We had finished the shoot and gotten what we needed that night. And I came down to the kitchen to get something, and he was still up. I said, what are you doing, Paul? And he goes, I'm I'm still trying to get the silk off. 
I said, what? And one of our fireflies had gotten wrapped by a spider that night. And what's horrible is they don't, the spiders don't kill them. They wrap them live. And you can kind of look at their eyes and see that they're alive. And um, Paul had stayed up late with little needles trying to get the silk off that firefly so we could release it the next day. Wow. You know, release it from the clutches of spider death. Yeah, yeah. And um, and I've done that many times also. And you think, why am I doing this? This is insane. It's Mm. probably going to die anyway. Mm. But it's an attitude that is different from 100 years ago. Oh, for sure. And and, But, you know, we can't put our thoughts on a world that no longer exists. Oh, of course. Uh, to me, that's not fair because those early naturalists did lots of great things. Yeah, maybe mm-hmm. they collected too many bugs and too many orangutans, but exactly. it was a different world then, and I, I don't think it's fair to put... Transitioning a little bit. Yeah. So, um, I obviously see that you're not just into fireflies. You're into bioluminescence. And, yeah. And so, uh, recently, I, a buddy just sent me six copies or not six copies but uh volume one through six of a vintage copy of the foxfire collection oh we have this i'm so excited so cool for the listener the foxfire books are these amazing books that i think were written by school kids who got an assignment to go out in georgia yeah Yeah. to go out in the mountains talk to old timers and learn how to do traditional stuff so the books are incredible i mean you can see um you know how to tan hides, how to, uh, you know, pick edible food in the spring, pick edible food in the summer, how to build, how to build a, uh, a fiddle, how to build a barn. Mm-hmm. But I just realized that Foxfire is named after this bioluminescent mushroom. Right. Glowing fungus. Right. Yeah. Have you seen this? Yeah. Yeah. We have it around here. Again, you have to, so many things you have to walk in the dark. It's not good enough to go out at night with a flashlight because really you're not in the dark. Exactly. Then. You got to cut are, the flashlight. You, you have to walk in the dark. There's a wonderful Wendell Berry quote about that. I have it in the book. It's my favorite quote. Um, and I could, I'll have to read it though. I'll get it wrong. But um, so Foxfire is all around, particularly when you have a wet summer. That's when you're going to see it. If it's dry, you don't see it that much. And they actually, we do have mushrooms that glow. There's some up on the hill. There's some down there. The jack-o'-lantern mushroom and the, um, what is it? There's a white one that also glows. But real foxfire is the, I think it's called the mycelium. Hmm. I, I would have read up on this if I knew I was going to talk about okay. it. But it. It will encrust things. So the best foxfire I've ever seen was at Altmont, and it looked like a glowing man. It was like something standing there, a and it's what? big, a glowing man. A glowing man? Yeah, I mean, it was what this big thing glowing. And I stopped, and again, that's when it would become a ghost tale real easy. because most. What do you mean? Instinct, How tall is it? Well, it, was, it looked sort of like a crouch man. It was about that tall. Wait, so you're putting your, like, three feet? Yeah, yeah. It, oh, that's right. You growing see. out it of the was, ground. It was in. It was in it was front of me in the forest as I was walking in the dark. And younger, in my thirties, forties, I rarely, rarely used a light. You can like it, adapt your eyes, and you really see well enough not to break your leg. Um, that's a little different now. But I was walking in the dark, and I stopped. And again, had I been a Native American or a a person, not purposely looking for things at night, I would run because I didn't know what it was. 
And finally, I turned my light on. It was a stump. It was a rotting stump that had broken off about three feet high. And so it was big. It, it was the size of a man crouching, but the whole thing was glowing. God, a that's very, so Oh, it was so beautiful. And, um, and, and so that's my best fox fire. Sometimes you'll just see a little, just a little stump. There was, yeah, one this summer, there was a good one. I was camped in the so why are these, Mountains. Why are these um, mushrooms, why are they glowing? I don't know. Interesting. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I um, I know what you mean about because I go on walks with my headlamp off. Yeah, and you've got when to. when you do it's that during you firefly season, I mean oh. it's like a psychedelic trip. Yeah, I mean I haven't done very many psychedelics, but from my little experience, yeah. it's like you're oh my stomach's growling. But do um, you want a piece of bread or oh no, it's okay. Peanut butter sandwich. That's okay. Something? I ate a little okay. something before. Okay. But um, yeah, when you walk through the woods, yeah. without your headlamp on, and the fireflies are sparkling. And, you know, you see the blueness. It's yeah. like the woods are deep blue, and then the trees are all silhouetted yeah. black. Yeah. And then the sparkling amongst that, it is like you are, I mean, it is absolutely surreal. And it, I, I don't know how you, sometimes sometimes you experience things that are so simple as in, you know, fireflies. Mm-hmm. Everyone sees fireflies. But it's like, how is it possible that life is so beautiful? Oh, yeah. Like, how do we live in such an, on in such an incredible planet? That this, like what you're seeing, the woods at night with the fireflies walking amongst them in the dark woods. How is this even possible? This is just so incredible. Yeah, it it is. And how many never see it? Right. Uh, They're inside watching the blue TV. Yeah. And or doing their device, and even I, in my talks, I beg people and everyone, I'm guilty also. Don't look at your smartphone because your you're, eye, the oh, it just ruins your night vision. Right. And we have lo- we have lost the ability to sit quietly in the woods. It's mm-hmm. it's hard for me. I'm so ADD anyway, and it's like particularly this point of time. A hundred years ago, people could kind of sit quietly mm-hmm. easier, or you listen to some of those uh, or read some of the political speeches of a hundred years ago. Sometimes those guys went on for three and four hours, and people s- listen. Mm. We can't do that anymore. We're like, well, five minutes. Well, that's except enough. for podcasts. I mean, yeah, podcasts. People talk for three well, hours. Well, that's true. That's but true. yeah, I've learned. My, I've learned this through hunting to be able mm-hmm. to sit still and to. It's hard. It's hard, but when you get in the zone, you know, I've sat for deer for uh, seven hours or more. Yeah. Wow. And it's interesting how that. It's interesting once you get through the initial like annoyingness yeah. of being. Uh, silent and not moving and not thinking about other stuff, you do kind of drip into a timeless Sort of state. like the Native American spirit quests or something. Mm, you have to quieten mm. your mind mm. or prayer or anything. Mm. It's hard for modern-day people to quieten oh, yeah. their mind and just be there. Yeah, but I think it's real good for us, and we don't do it enough. Totally. Yeah. Switching so, gears. We've talked about a lot. Mm-hmm. You mentioned last night. So we walked around the back of your house. It yeah. was it was dusk. It's kind of eight o'clock at night. Yeah. And you have a big white sheet on the back of your house yeah. with a black light hanging on the side of it. And that's obviously to get all the moths and whatnot mm-hmm. to see, to kind of collect and see what's around. Um was it was an Imperial moth? Imperial moth. And and um well, I'd love for you to describe what the Imperial moth looks like. And did you mention that you had an Imperial moth story? I do. Okay. It's a little bit long. I'll try to shorten all my stories are long. You don't that's yeah. okay. And um this is not in the book, but it's 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 uh 
It's a kind of an amazing thing, and it's true. <laughs> Imperial moth is beautiful. It's one of the big silk moths. You can Google it, Imperial moth. And uh, the males are slightly different than the females, but they're basically orange and yellow on the top, on the their dorsal side, and underneath they're yellow. So they look like two different moths, actually, if you see them from above and see them from below. And they're not common. And um, they're just not common. I don't, usually I see one a year. And I'll tell you why I see one a year. Okay, in 2006, uh, I have one brother, Alan, and we were very close as siblings. He, he was married and had three little kids. He was a fighter pilot. He was larger than life, like the nicest guy in the world. And he died suddenly from a heart attack. And I received the phone call. Here he had been a fighter pilot all these years and always my secret fear was he would die in a plane crash because he did lots of very, he was a stealth pilot, a lot of scary stuff and that didn't take him out at all. Anyway, I received the call from my sister-in-law who was devastated, they're up in Pennsylvania, and um, that he had died, and I received the call at four o'clock that afternoon. And so I collapsed one of the few times in my life, literally went to my knees. I mean, that really is real, <laughs> you know? And I found that out, and it was on the kitchen floor in there. But then I, I realized I had to tell my mother that her son had died at 54. And um, and so I called Edgar, he came home. He, I wasn't good to drive, but we drove into mom's to tell her. And it was horrible, you know, just horrible. And it, you have the disbelief, it's like, what do you mean? No, that's not right. You know, you go through all of that. And anyway, when we got back home, I was thinking a little more clearly, the funeral was to be in, in Pennsylvania. I needed to be up there. My my sister-in-law was left with two small children and a third one in D.C., and there was a funeral to plan. She wasn't in any condition. I'd never planned a funeral, but somebody needed to. We had 29 relatives that were coming just from Knoxville, and suddenly it's, it's like an event. I mean, a funeral is really tough. Like, right when you're at your worst, you're supposed to put on this thing. And uh, But I just felt an intense need to be with my nephews, to be with my sister-in-law, who I dearly love. And uh, so when we got home, I turned to Edgar and said, I'm leaving, I'm leaving at dawn. You know, I, I knew I needed to pack. I didn't want to drive in the dark. It's a 10 hour drive. But I said, I'm gonna leave right at dawn so I can get there tomorrow, find hotels for all of us, do all of that. And he understood And my mother, he was gonna bring my mother up a couple of days later and some of the elder, older relatives and all. We were gonna do the exodus up there. And um, so, that night, it was about one in the morning, and you know, I had to think of funeral clothes, all that stuff. And so I had the car pretty well packed, then I wanted to go to bed and just get up and get in the car the next morning. And so I was packing the car, almost finished, and suddenly something hit me on the face. And I, you know, I thought, oh, what was that? And it landed right in front of me on the car. So there was no way I could miss it. No way I could miss it. And it was an imperial moth, and it just landed there. And I looked at it, and it was like it wanted my attention, the way it had hit me on the way. A moth doesn't do that. It could see me. And I didn't know it was an imperial moth. I just knew it was a big old pretty moth at the time. And I looked at it and immediately felt this was not just a moth. 
you know, this this was my brother. This was the spirit telling me it's okay. Thank you for going out there, being with my family. I mean, that was as clear as a bell to me. And so I said, wait a minute, wait. <laughs> and I ran inside and got my camera, this before digital, but got a real camera and came running back out and I wanted it to be there and it was still there. And so I took a couple of pictures and that's what's on the bathroom wall in there. You need to go back and see the Allen moth. We call it the Allen moth. And, and as soon as I took the picture, I said, thank you. And it left, it just left. And I thought, whoa, that was pretty weird. And so went to bed, got in the car, drove up, cried the whole way up, screamed at one point, took the wrong interstate and ended up in Wheeling, West Virginia. And I was supposed to be going to Pittsburgh. I mean, it was a terrible trip, but I was actually thankful I was alone. I just, I, I just didn't, I just needed to be alone. And so I got up to this little town near where they lived, Cranberry. And they, it's a kind of a new suburban area outside of Pittsburgh with lots of new things. And there were several hotels. I'd already kind of looked that up, and there were about five hotels. And then to put 29 people, you know, we kind of all wanted to be together so we could have breakfast together and everything. And so I thought, well, this is not going to be a problem. There's all these new holiday inns and different things. And so I walked in the first one, no rooms, no rooms. And what it was, it is suburban, and it was soccer tournament time of year, not a single room in any hotel. And it's like, oh, wait, I, I didn't think of this. We don't want to stay an hour away. What am I going to do? And I got back in the car, and I was, I mean, I went to all five hotels. There were no rooms. And... Um, and one had like two rooms and one had three, but I really wanted us to be together. So I got back in the car. By this time, it was four o'clock in the afternoon in July, hot in a new suburb you know, with no trees. I mean, just hot, hot, hot as hell. And there were six lanes of traffic. I pulled out from the last hotel, six lanes of traffic, and it was starting to be five o'clock traffic. And so I was sitting in the car, it had to have been 100 degrees in the blaring sun, and I was starting to cry. It's like, what do I do? I mean, what do I do? Where do, we, where do we all stay? And I don't want them to have to worry. This was something I was gonna do. And I sat in the car and I was inching along in the traffic, three lanes on my side, three on the other, and the light turned red again. And so, but I was the first, first one at the light. And as I sat there, Suddenly, up ahead, I could see something coming through the air, just coming through the air, and it was tumbling through the air on that hot four o'clock in the afternoon. I thought, that looks like an autumn leaf. You know, what is that? And there was no wind. There were no trees to have leaves. There was nothing. And it tumbled, 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 and landed on the windshield, and it was an imperial moth. It's kind of like, if you didn't get it last night, I'm going to show you one more time. And so it's like, holy moly. And so I, again, I, I kept saying the same word each time. I said, wait, wait a minute. I thought, I can't, when this light turns, I can't just start driving and the thing will fly off and get run over. That sounds horrible. So I drove really slow. I put my hazard lights on and I, I said, just wait. And it was looking at me. And so that's when I learned the bottom side. See, I didn't even realize it was the same moth at this point because it was the yellow side I was looking at. and But I knew it was big and it was shaped the same way and all that. 
So I put my hazards on because I was on the inside lane and I had to get, and I just started inching over real slow so its wings weren't moving because I thought I've got to find a tree and some grass or something. And finally I saw a tree up there in, in some business park. So I pulled in and it was, it stayed the whole time. And I gently got it off and I put it on the tree and I thanked it and then I left. And so I, en I ended up uh, going to the farm I thought, well, forget the hotel rooms. I'm going to figure that out in the morning. I'm so tired. And um, I, I went out to their farm, and it was just so sad. I mean, it was just so sad. It was so sudden and so sad. And, um, and relatives were starting to show up and all. And so we were all in the kitchen with my sister-in-law and her sisters, and there was a pile of kids and uh, a lot of cousins and all. And they were all out on the porch, and his two sons were just, they didn't even know what to think. They were eight and ten years old. One has cerebral palsy, so he was, he was like, my brother was his hero and took him to therapy and all that. Anyway, they were all playing outside, and suddenly we heard just thumping and screams, and it had gotten dark by this time, just thump, scream, and we thought maybe March had fallen or something because it gets rough with all the cousins and his mobility is a little bit limited and so we went running out there thinking nobody was crying though but we could hear these horrible sounds and we went out and said what are y'all doing and they were all laughing and they looked joyous they said the most beautiful orange moth just came and it was here and they said it's gone now and so that was the third time in 24 hours it was the imperial moth we we went to church on sunday after the funeral my um, sister-in-law is a pastor and she didn't preach of course but she felt a real need to go so we all went and held hands and cried and they had a visiting pastor because she she wasn't going to preach she just lost her husband and um, the pastor got up and said, who likes insect stories? And went to tell of a story of when her son was in the hospital and a butterfly landed on her car. And it was just such a, it was a beautiful story she told, but it was like, oh my gosh, that's so similar to what we've been experiencing. It definitely felt more than just a moth showing up, um, but it fell off my radar. And a year later, on the day, it's, it's always the week of his death. So it might be the day he died, it might be the day we buried him, but it was, it was that week we were all together. Um, I woke up, there was something hitting the window in our bedroom. And I mean, hitting it, not stopping. And there was no light on. And I turned on the light and it was an imperial moth. And that has happened. So that was 2006 when it began and it has happened every single year since. And it's almost to the point, it's like, Alan, it's okay. You don't, come, you don't have to do this every year. Always when I'm not thinking of it, I just hear the beating. And, and, and then there it is, and it's usually between the 21st and the 25th of July. And so I'm well aware as, as an insect lover that, you know, different seasons for different things. But it's been, it's been so predictable and one other year, and this story's too long, but this was kind of cool. I was up in the Smokies, and I had not seen the Allen moth. And I was okay. It was the 25th of July, and it hadn't come. And I wasn't going to be home till that night. And I thought, you know, it's okay. It, it's okay. And, uh, and I was getting my net. I was up there doing fireflies. I was getting my net in my backpack. I was in the parking lot of this kind of remote campground. And, and I was getting everything ready. 
and I guess I do stand out a little bit, you know, because I've got a net and the headlight around my neck and all that stuff. But it was it was still daylight, and this car came through, and it was it's a remote campground, and I've really never had trouble with anybody, but I could feel that this car was looking at me, and so he went past and kept going, and then he came around a second time, and it was a single man, and I thought, oh gosh, you know. Uh, is this some weirdo? Like, what am I supposed to do? And he stopped when he got even the second time. He stopped and rolled down his window. And he said, you look like you know something about insects. I guess because I was holding an insect net. I said, yeah, a little bit. Why? He said, I need to describe what I just saw at my house. He said, I've never seen anything like it. And he said, it was a moth, and it was shaped like a big triangle, and it was orange and yellow. He said, do you know what that is? So that was on July 25th of the year I had not seen the Allen moth. And I went, I do know what that was. I said, you saw an imperial moth. He said, thank you. I knew you'd know. And he drove away. He didn't get out of his car. And I thought, wow. So that was my visitation this year. And at that point, I, w I was packed and locked the door and uh, locked the car and all and went up to go to the bathroom. And on the bathroom door was an imperial moth. Just in case I didn't get it from that man, it was just laying there. That's so goddamn so, unreal. Isn't that cool? That's unbelievable. So that's, yeah. Um, well, oh, and if you look at the picture of the original moth, um, most of them have it, but the original moth, his name was Alan, so he has an A on each wing. You need to go see. Oh. And my brother was a redhead. Oh. So this is the color of his hair. This moth is the same color. I was also going to say that. His nickname was Torch. You said he flew He flew stealth, yeah, which are that, also yes, triangular. Yes. Just, yeah. Wow. The same shape as a stealth. Wow. Yeah. And so, you know, you can what talk that away and decide, no but... Well, that's the name of this podcast, Our Numinous Nature. That's numinous. Yeah, it and, was numinous. And, that's, and that, in, in, Jungian, in Jungian terminology, is synchronicity. Yes. So those are, is, you know, synchronicity is basically a, a meaningful coincidences. Yes. So, and you know, you, when the synchronicity happens, the, the person knows instantaneously yeah. there's something different happening right. here than what's normal. Yeah. God, yeah. that's amazing. So anyway, that's That's my, so special. My... So I actually have a folder on my computer that died this week, and the new one came this morning, um, of all the Allen moths every year. Because I always, I always say, wait, wait just a minute. <laughs> and I run and get a phone, or now a phone. It used to be a camera. And, and then it usually leaves. It doesn't keep beating against the window. It's gone. That's and, so special. Uh, yeah. So That's so special. Yeah. Wow. Thank so you for sharing that. that's my numinous story. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate that. Um, well, do you feel like we should kind of wrap it up? Probably. I mean, we've gone on a while. Yeah, I love it, though. Um, um yeah. It, well, unless there's anything in, well, oh, there was something quick I wanted to say. Okay. And then I want, unless there's anything you want to wrap up about, obviously I want you to say the title of your book, where can people get it? Oh, okay. But before that, I wanted to say, yesterday I got to meet your husband, Edgar, mm. and I love stuff. So my girlfriend, she's from New Zealand, so she has all these kind of totally eccentric phrases that she'll just say normally in a sentence, and I'm like, what the hell is that supposed to mean? Like, what does that mean? <laughs> and I love it. And so obviously, very similarly, in the South, people have all these incredible, very uh, soulful and lyrical and kind of um, literary phrases that they say all the time. So yesterday, we were, we were out back talking, 
And I was describing to you and your husband how I just watched the episode of um, uh, Seven Worlds, One Planet, mm. the North American episode that, that you worked on. And before the scene with the lightning bugs, they showed all the spring wildflowers. And they do an incredible time lapse that shows the lady slipper come up, then it shows uh, trillium opening and bloodroot opening, and then it shows the mayapple flower, mm -hmm. and um, then it gets into, there's two other flowers that I wasn't quite sure which ones those are. But when I said that, your husband said this awesome little folky thing about <laughs> the mayapple. And he said that people, and he's got this incredibly beautiful, like deep accent. So he sounds amazing just when he talks. <laughs> and he was saying, I want to get him on the podcast at some point. But he was saying that, um, I don't know if it was back in the day, but people would pick Mayflower and it must be yeah, medicinal. Mayapple. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Is that, did I say that before? Mm -hmm. Okay. No, you said Mayapple earlier. Okay, I did. You're good. Okay, good, good, good. So people would dig up Mayapple and he said that it, you know, it was almost a fruitless cause that for an entire pound, it would, you could only get 10 cents to sell it. So he said that this, there's a phrase that if someone offers you some opportunity and it's like, well, there's no point doing that. You say, I'd rather dig Mayapple. <laughs> and I love that. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm, that's going to enter into my speech. There you go. So anytime something sucks, next time. <laughs> yeah, anytime th something sucks, I'd rather dig Mayapple. Um, okay. So, oh, oh. And one other quick last thing. Will you tell us about the ginseng that you're growing here? Because a lot of my audience is really, they're herbalists. Oh, okay. Would you, I, that was a very short story. Would you just yeah, tell Yeah, that's about a short, I'm mm -hmm. sorry my stories are so long. No, no, um, I want them to be long. We, we have lived here over 40 years and uh, we call it Sang. Mm -hmm. um, and Sang has always been a big deal. And Edgar, my husband with the Mayapple phrase, he has always appreciated ginseng. And um, so as soon as we moved here, he scouted around for good places to plant it. But in the 70s, it was still even a problem here in the valley. You didn't want sang diggers to come steal your sang. And, uh, and so he picked places. There's one place right out here near the house. He figured that'd be safe. But habitat-wise, the very best place was down toward the creek. And he picked out a really good spot down there and put out saying that did very well over the years, very well. And it grew up and, you know, the roots get bigger and the bunches and then they have the red seeds and all that. And so he would check on it every year. And um, and year by year, the old timers died out. Our area became less rural, and um, we quit worrying about the thing. You know, we we just sort of didn't think about it. it. Was there? It was growing every year. It was multiplying. It was doing well. And then our middle son, we have three three grown sons. And now. you were saying this is like fifteen years. Yeah, this is a long time ago because he was still at home. He's thirty seven now, more than fifteen years. Sorry. 25, time flies. It was, he was a young The roots have been growing for 20 years? Oh, yeah. I mean, we've had the roots wow. for 40, some of them. Oh, man. So, and did. I think I'm not too well versed in this. My landlady yeah. who runs this nonprofit, United Plant Savers, she's taught me a lot about ginseng and kind of that black market. But, right. So, a root that's been growing for 20 years could be worth thousands yeah, or of dollars. 40. I don't, yeah. At I least mean, hundreds. we've never sold it, we've never dug it. We just like the idea of it. Okay. And, um, yeah, so it was good, and it was multiplying. You know, our patch was good, but the son, who's now 37, and he was a young teen, so do the math, 20 years ago. Oh, and just to interject, yeah. in case someone's listening and they don't know this, ginseng has a history 
of being dug up in the mountains of Appalachia because mm. it's been yes. used by um, Eastern medicine. So mm-hmm. mainly For in Asia and China and, mm-hmm, yeah. and roots. You know, I don't know much about this, and I do want to have a podcast just about this. Oh, but, yeah. But basically, um, people in Asia will act, sometimes they'll actually frame in a, a root, and these can be worth hundreds of thousands mm. of dollars. And they call them man roots. Yes. They kind of look like and, yeah. the, and And then other ones are just used medicinally, but they're highly coveted. Mm-hmm. And I believe that ginseng was, um, it used to be a lot in China, but it had been basically all dug up, I think, by like the 1800s or something. I'm not sure mm-hmm. on that one. But basically, our Appalachian ginseng is still heavily coveted. Yeah, it's okay. worth a lot. Worth a lot. It's worth a lot. So you've got this patch, and and they also say they can grow it commercially now. But yes. ours is wild, and yes. supposedly the wild is more powerful. And it's, I think more it's an sought after. Yeah, and yeah, and they you can charge more and all that. But we've never we grew it just simply because we knew that everybody was digging it up, and we wanted a place for it to be safe. But anyway, the sun, the middle sun, is quiet and uh, always roam in the woods and ended up being an aquatic biologist once he grew up. And he was down in the woods one day as a 13-year-old, and we didn't know. I mean, he was just down there. And several days later, he said, Mom, who was the man with the sack down in our woods the other day? I said, what do you mean the man with the sack? He said, there was an old man with a beard with a sack near the ginseng. Because Hugh, the son, knew where the ginseng was. I said, what do you mean? I said, did you ask him who he was? And uh, no one's ever down there. And most of the old men with beards had died. I mean, it just wasn't, you can see the flavor of the road now. It's changed. And uh, I said, well, did you speak to him? He said, no, I ran. (laughs) (laughs) Probably a good move. And yeah. And so we walked down that afternoon. I said, well, what do you think he was doing? He said, I don't know, but I think he might have been digging ginseng. And we went down and not a single root was left. Man, that sucks. Yeah. And so. So that's poaching. They trespass. I guess so. Yeah, it is. It is. And I still don't know who the man was. I mean, we kind of knew everybody Mm. around here, but he was one of the last that could find it, recognize it, and willing to go on a steep hill Mm. in the middle of nowhere and dig it up. Mm. And so it probably ended up in China. And and per- potentially risking getting shot trespassing on someone's property. Oh, I guess so. We we probably <laughs> wouldn't have done that. But it was just I'm just curious who was it? Yeah. Who was that last holdout that, sure. that remembered? Fascinating. Um yeah. Oh, okay. So. Before t- before closing up, is this your son? So I mentioned to you an email. I said, Hey, I just talked to this fur bear biologist. You know, he said that there are mountain lions in western Tennessee, so oh. not here. Yeah. And then you said your son, your middle son, had been attacked by a mountain Yes. Line. Is this it, this guy? No, no. He. Oh, it's the same child. It's Hugh. Yes, the same child. Yeah, the same. He's a man. Could we quickly hear about Hugh. that? Um, oh, gosh. Well, he would need to tell that story, but he's along Eggers' lines. Oh, he's a— <laughs> He's a minimalist in, in conversation. Um, it was Wyoming. It was not in Tennessee. Yes. It was not a, a West Tennessee mountain lion. It was Wyoming. And uh, two of our sons graduated from University of Wyoming. And he's always been an outdoorsman and got up one morning to to uh, bird watch. He had his binoculars and a Polar Tech jacket. That's all he had. And he knew of a place on Sheep Mountain that was sort of a flyway. He thought the warblers or something would be coming through. So he parked his car and started up a little game trail. It's also a trail, uh, so the 
a lot of scout troops use collecting sheds as fundraisers out there. So, you know, people had kind of been on the trail before. He knew where he was so going. So that'd be elk sheds and mule deer sheds? Um, yeah, elk mainly is what they look for. But there's mule deer, too. So anyway, he was looking for the birds and walking along and enjoying the morning. And um, he said uh, he heard ground squirrels starting to chitter up ahead suddenly. And so he stopped because he's he's outside a lot and understands nature quite well. And he said, I knew it was something. They, they don't just chitter for nothing. He said, so I stopped and I looked and a lot of rattlesnakes out there. He wanted to make sure he wasn't going to step on a snake or something. And he said, I, I held my breath. I looked. I didn't see anything. And, um, and the squirrels got kind of quiet. And so he thought, well, I don't know what that was. And so he took a few more steps and um, walked a little further. And suddenly a rock... Just came, just a small rock, you know, like that big, uh, an inch across, came rolling down the hill right in front of him and stopped on the trail. So he stopped again, <laughs> and he thought, wait a minute, that's too different. There's something here. I'm not alone. And so he stopped, and again, holding the monoculars, and how did he do this? He turned back, and he thought, I'm just going to scan everything above me on this hill because there was a hill to his left and there's a picture upstairs i'll show it to you when you leave um and so he he was holding his breath so he could really hear and scan in that hill and he he just didn't see anything didn't see anything and when he turned forward the line had already pouched and or or pounced and was in the air He's, and so uh, he saw it in yeah, the air coming at him. Yeah, and so it had been stalking him, oh and it, the squirrels did know what they were doing. The little rock, you know, it had dislodged the rock. That's when it got in front of him, oh. and it was just waiting. You know, a cat waits for you to turn away from him. But anyway, so as it came, all he had was his binoculars, and he had taken, if I recall, he had taken the polar tech off. And he was just kind of headed over his arm, but he had the binoculars. So as it hit, he smashed it in the face with the binoculars. That was it. And then he dropped, you know, when he did it, the binoculars fell. So suddenly he had nothing. It was just him. And the cat did he get knocked, knocked over? It down. I mean, it just kind of knocked it down because it was in the air and he knocked it on the head. And so it landed and he said, he said, Mom, it was just like, Lucky, you know, it was our cat. I guess we had a cat named Jet then. He said it was like a giant cat. It crouched and was doing its tail. You know how a, a hunting cat will do that. And it was just all tense, just staring at him. Holy shit, right at his and, feet? Yeah. It was, he, he said about three feet away, five oh feet away, God. because he had, he had touched it. You know, he had oh knocked it with the binoculars. And he said he tried to make himself big. He said, I used every big boy bad word I could think of. I was screaming, and the cat the cat wasn't scared. It wasn't going to leave, and it was just waiting for its opportunity. Oh, my God. And so his car was about 150 yards down, down the trail across a little draw, across a little canyon thing he had climbed across. And he finally realized, he said his voice was given out. He, he just kept trying to be big, but he wasn't big. And 
So is he backing up right now? Yeah, he's well, like at that steps. point, he thought, I've got to back up. I've got to back out of here. And so he wasn't sure what was going to happen, but he didn't want to not face the cat. Hell yeah. He knew as soon as he turned around, it would it would not be good. And so he took one step back, and it took one step forward. No way. And it followed him the whole way, step by step, the whole way down the trail till he got to where the gully was that Holy he had shit. crossed. And he couldn't figure out. He was still facing it. He says, as long as I faced it, it didn't look like it was going to pounce. Holy but it was shit. ready. You know, it was just tense with its tail just Holy doing shit. back and forth. And so he got to the gully, and he had to get across it, but he didn't want to turn his back to the cat. And so he said, he looked down, and there was, you know, there's rocks and stuff. So he kind of got all ready. And he dropped down off the gully, picked up rocks, and just started throwing them as he oh. went down and crossed the gully. And it, it's, he said the cat would go, you know, a rock would hit him, and it kind of, it would spit and hiss, and, but it would slow it down a little bit. And he said he got to the other side, throwing the rocks, and the cat just sailed across. It didn't need to go down across the gully. It just met him on the other side. Oh, my so God. he got all the way to the car. And the cat followed him all the way to the car. And he got in the car, and his camera was on the front seat. He hadn't carried the camera with him, or, yeah, he hadn't carried it with him. I think it was just sitting there. And it was film camera days. This happened before digital. Yeah. And so he thought, I've got to take a picture of it, because it was still outside the window of the—it had followed him the whole way down. And, um, and so he reached over to get the camera, and it needed film. And he said, so he grabbed the, he had film right there, and he started putting it in, and that's when the shakes hit. He said he had not actually felt scared the entire time because he was so busy staying alive. Goddamn right. And, but once he got in that car, you know, he, and he said he shook, he shook, shook, shook. And so by the time he got the film loaded, he got the camera, and the cat was gone. That is incredible. Yeah. That is an incredible uh, story. He called us right after that, and I picked up the phone. And I think we picked it. I don't think it was answering machine. It was like, who is this? And his voice was about an octave higher than mm. normal. He's like, Mom, Mom, I'm okay. I, I just want you to know I'm okay. I'm okay. <laughs> and he was, and he was still in the car Freaking right out. there. And now he's a wildlife biologist. He was in wildlife biology out in Wyoming, so he he knew scouts use this trail. He he felt like it was about a 120-pound sub-adult male. Mm. And that's just like a teenage boy doing something stupid like that. You know, mm. it's a teenage cat. And um, it hadn't learned the rules yet because they are hunted in Wyoming, so they have very few attacks there. Mm. You have a good many in Colorado, California, where mm. they're not, but they are still hunted there. But this cat showed no fear at all. But Hugh went right to the wildlife people back in Laramie, because he said, scouts use this trail. I don't want a bunch of scouts. Oh, Boy Scouts. Yeah, Boy Scouts. He said, somebody could die. Get picked off a kid. Yeah, and so he went to report it, and they wouldn't believe him. Wow. And it made him so upset. He said, I'm just telling you, it's there, and it's not scared of people, and somebody's going to get hurt. And uh, so finally, he said, call my professors, because he had done necropsies on mountain lions. I mean, he had worked with them. Uh. He's worked with big cats in Africa. You know, he's, he's, he's done that. And uh, so in the end, his professors vouched for him, and, and I don't know that the cat was ever 
found. I don't I don't really God. know, although the Colorado line is right there, and there was an attack pretty soon after that over in Colorado. Oh and I've God. always wondered. I thought, oh, I wonder what that was. But um, but it, you know, it, it was something. Absolutely fascinating. That's yeah. a hell of an experience. It was something. And so it's written up. There is a, uh, there's a book called, I think it's called Cougar. And it documents all the accounts of attacks that have happened in North America, Vancouver, kind of mm. Canada area, this century. And his is one of them. Oh, so, man. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, so cool. Well, thank you for sharing that. That's a hell of a way yeah. to end this podcast. <laughs> okay. Do you want to just um, tell me a little bit about oh. your book and where people can order it? And okay. uh, I really appreciate it. This has been incredible. Well, this has been fun. You're, you are an amazing enjoy. human being. Oh, no, thank you. You are to just get out there and do this. That's well, got to be I'm honored, scary. and I'm so, and, you know, the Southern hospitality is real. I <laughs> contacted you, and you, you know, out of the blue, you don't know me, and we ended up staying down in your guest house down by the horses. Yeah, that worked. So that I appreciate worked. it. So tell yeah. me about what your okay, book. Okay, so my book is called Fireflies, Glowworms, and Lightning Bugs. And it's the identification and natural history of the fireflies of the eastern and central U.S. And uh, it's available sort of everywhere, Amazon. Um, it's from University of Georgia Press. It is peer-reviewed, um, both as a proposal and the book itself, heavily peer-reviewed. But it is written for naturalists. It's written for interested people, for park managers, for people that lead nature hikes. It's not written in scientific lingo, or I hope it isn't. I try to make it as understandable as possible. It has over, covers close to 60 or 70 species, and each species has six to 10 photographs and its own little species chapter. Then the first part of the book is general information about fireflies. So, um, yeah, I get Thank it. Thank you. Yes. Get it. People seem to like it. And, and we bought and, our copy straight from you. Yeah. And yeah. I love and it. And then I misspelled your name. I can't believe I did and, that. And so when you walk into our cabin on our staircase, mm -hmm. it's all of the, the quick books. So, it, oh, you know, the I books we need. Oh, it goes there. Oh, yes, it will. Yeah. So we've got all of our guides there. We've got the fi uh, the Foxfire books and we've got, the you know, all our cookbooks. So that's where it's going. Oh, good, good. All and right. next summer when they start coming out, you can yep. start trying to figure out what you have.